Tuesday. The toilet on the third floor had become a second home for me. Its couch and the associated conversations continued to attract me, and today was no exception. How did your talk with Matthew go? (laughs) It would not surprise you. That means not well. Congratulations. You're able to remember your own predictions. Don't take your frustrations out on me. I'm sorry, I'm still frustrated. And I just don't understand how I can get through. Through what? Well, this barrier they put in front of me. You don't. What what do you mean? The stronger you push, the harder they will push back. So what can I do? You have two choices. Walk round the wall, or wait for the pull. Explain. The people inside an organisation are always less attractive than candidates from the outside. Over time, it is almost unavoidable that you will be involved in conflicts. You will receive some battle scars and you will make some enemies. People from the outside have no history of conflicts. Management only has their CV to go by. It is much easier to look good on paper. Brett is a good example. So? So, you may need to look for a higher position outside this university. But I don't want to leave. I I own a house here. My family and friends are here. I understand. Well, it might not actually come to that. But given your recent banter with ACM, you might not have another option. Once you have offers from other organisations, you will also look much more attractive to the management here. How? It's, it's one of the oldest phenomena in social psychology. Envy. The possessions of others tend to look better than your own. <laughs> the neighbour's grass is always greener? Yep. So I walk to my boss with an offer from another university, and then? Uh, you'd have to play it indirectly. You could say something like... Uh, I really like working here, but this other place approached me with a very tempting offer. Uh, Is there anything you can do to help me stay? Smooth, very smooth. What's the uh, waiting for the pull option? Uh, This might take a bit longer, uh, but it is less stressful. You just lean back. You do exactly what is expected of you and, and nothing more. You avoid any extra work. You publish almost nothing. As long as you keep on teaching, they have little formal reason to fire you. You continue to promise that you will improve and that you are working hard on your research project, but since you're so busy teaching, there's little time available to make progress. When you say it takes longer, how much longer? Uh, Several years. You will have to wait until a couple of research evaluations have swept over the department. You also can't apply for any promotion. You just tell them that you're happy with your current position and your current work. And how is that going to motivate them to promote me? Once they notice that you no longer have an interest in them, you will look attractive again. People want what they can't have. But this may also backfire and they'll write me off completely. There is always a chance of failure. So you may as well enjoy the ride. If you lean back... You have lots of time to explore all sorts of interests. Remember, you have the internet right in front of you. What else do you need to keep you busy and entertained? I'm not sure about this option. I have too much energy. This is a common problem in academia. But remember, the system is set up so that nothing is ever enough. No matter how many papers you publish, students you supervise or grants you receive, they will always ask for more.
you will have to learn how to set your own boundaries. You need to stop at some point, otherwise you'll just burn out. Why does it have to be so difficult? Why doesn't management have an interest in giving its employees a career path, job security and appreciation? Academics are intrinsically motivated. We wouldn't stop working just because they praise us. Appraisal is cheap. They would usually tell you what a great job you've done, right? That's what they told me. Because it doesn't cost them much. Just a few words. True appraisal is based on money and status. Again, why is it so difficult? Because the people that make it to the top are usually not good researchers. They're politicians. They enjoy power and they're busy defending it against each other. Have you ever looked at the publication record of our Dean? It's a joke. So we're back to the Dilbert principle. Whoever can do something remains a lower ranked researcher and whoever can't do anything becomes a manager. Well, that might be true. So, do you really want to climb the career ladder? Not all the way to the top. Seems like the only thing they do is fight about resources and prestige. I still want to do research. Can't have it all. Oh, this is absurd. I've published more papers than the rest of the group combined. I've received plenty of citations and I'm invited to conferences and panels. Everybody except this department seems to appreciate my work. Shouldn't all my achievements count for something? Rob, 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 you underestimate the vanity of the upper management. If you're more successful than they are, then you make them look bad. Never be smarter than your boss. You need to ask yourself what is truly important to you. That is a truly good question. The rest of my afternoon was filled with lectures and emails. I picked up the children from school on my way home and we continued our charade. The children sensed the tension in the family but weren't able to reflect on it. They adjusted, even to this disturbing situation. The only true discussions between Marky and me happened once the kids were asleep. I will take care of the children. You can have them every second weekend and maybe you can pick them up from school every once in a while. That's not what I have in mind. The girls need their father and I can only fulfil this role if I am integrated into their daily lives. I don't want to be their entertainment officer every other weekend. Why do you make it so difficult? I am their mother and I should take care of them. You are indeed their mother. And I am convinced that you are going to do a good job but I'm their father and need to be with them as well. Both parents have equal responsibilities and equal obligations towards them. In the past, you did take care of them more than I did, but we were married then. You decided to leave, so now you also have to accept the consequences. You only want the children so that you don't have to pay more money. That's not correct. I want to be with my children and they want to be with me. I make you an offer. You get the children on the weekends. That won't work. Both of us will need some time to relax and recover. We should alternate the weekends and work out the weekdays from that. But I have to work, and what am I going to do when the children are sick? I am getting paid by the hour, and if I don't show up, I don't get paid. I understand that this is hard for you, but, well, that's what to be expected from a separation. Both of our lives will change dramatically. Our costs of living will double while our income will remain the same. It'll be less comfortable for both of us. You still have a large salary. I got you your job to start with. Without me, you wouldn't have work at all. All right. How about 
if you get the children on the weekends and you only have to pay me as if we are sharing them equally. This is a trap. If I say okay to this, then she will conclude that I am just after the money and that I'm not a good father. Nice try. There's a reason why I married you. You're smart, but you're so wrong. The children need me. Your father wasn't around for you. You really don't know how important it is. I told you before, and I'll tell you again. The children need their father, not a funny uncle. I understand that you were pretty much raised by your mother, and that does work to some degree, but it is so much better when their father is involved. You never truly accepted me as their father in our family, but that opportunity is gone. Now we deal more on the basis of family law and you will have to accept my role. I will put my lawyer on this. Do as you please, but it isn't going to change anything. My lawyer will respond and we will both waste lots of money on nothing. In the meantime, we will have to work out a temporary solution. We need to come up with a plan for taking care of the children now. We can't wait for a ruling from the family court or a discussion between our lawyers. We need something that works now. I suggest we split 50-50. That is unfair. I don't understand your definition of fair. What could be more fair? They are my children. We're going round in circles. We've already discussed this. Look, a week has seven days. I am willing to compromise to a three, four days split. But that is all I will ever accept. I have to think about it. Marky, we're practically separated now. We need to take care of the children now, not once you've consulted with your lawyer. Thursday. Jack's response arrived after lunch. I immediately forwarded it to Professor Smith. Dear Rob, I understand that your intent was not to engage members in a personal way, but you should be aware that your attempts to probe the Kai Conference peer review did have negative consequences, and those consequences could have been worse. For example, in the CMC discussion, there was at least one Kai author who was extremely upset that their work was resubmitted without their permission. I am certainly not suggesting that those negative effects were intentional, nor that your efforts were malicious which is why we are having this discussion. My responsibility is to oversee all of SIGKAI's 18 or so conferences, including Kai. Let's do a thought experiment for a moment. Let's say that a hundred researchers all decided to probe the effectiveness of our peer review system in the same way you did. What would happen? An extra 1,200 papers would be injected into a very overloaded system, and it's possible that many mistakes would be made. Unlike the original Peterson-Sessy study which sent one paper to 12 journals, you sent 12 papers to a single conference. What would have happened if those papers all got in? Unlike a journal process, conferences have limitations that often mean that 12 other papers would not have been accepted. Even if you withdrew them after the acceptances and rejections went out, there would be little we could do to resurrect 12 potentially deserving papers after the members of the program committee were no longer available. We don't leave the PC meeting with a rank order of papers. Again, potential harm as a result of your study. 
How would you feel if it was one of your retracted papers was accepted with scores very similar to the paper from one of your students or colleagues which was rejected? This isn't about making people comfortable or uncomfortable. I can tell you that I've never seen a papers chair or technical programme chair who was comfortable until all the meta-reviews were in and the letters went out. Please remember, we're all volunteers here, as are the members of the Ethics Committee, as are the papers, chairs, SCs, ACs and reviewers. As to the policies and procedures, ACM has a code of professional ethics, and violations of that code of ethics are referred to the Committee on Professional Ethics, COPE. <laughs> I'm aware of the science article and the nature paper of many others. In the case of the science article, the papers in question were fabricated, not recycled papers from previous editions of journals. I can't speak for ACM, but from SIGKAI's perspective, it would have been appropriate to have the discussion about what you were attempting to do and what your expected outcomes would be, if not with the paper's chairs, then at least with the CMC or conference chairs. We would have been in a much better position to manage the process and deal with the potential of multiple overlapping studies. As it is, what do you conclude from your experiment? The duplicate papers were detected and the CHI process worked. Do you intend to publish that? I wonder what science would have done if all the trash papers in their sting were rejected from all your journals. ACM has an ethics committee that deals with issues of ethics and professional conduct under the ACM Code of Ethics. What they need to decide is if this study violates that code of ethics and, if so, what the remedy might be. In my role within SIGCHI, I would love to see it not get that far, but it may be out of my hands. No, ACM's remedies are not a legal action, any sense of litigation, but the question will almost certainly be your ethics as an individual. I have no idea what remedies the Committee on Professional Ethics would apply, I haven't had any interaction with them until now. Thank you. I'm sure we'll all be happier once this is all cleared up. Jack. Did you see the email that came back? I'm looking at it right now. Can we talk about it? Sure. Come in. Close the door. What do you think? Well, did you have a look at the ACM Code of Ethics? Yes, they talk about how a computer engineer should not cause harm such as loss of information or damage of property. We are also supposed to protect the fundamental human rights, respect the diversity of culture, and in general we are supposed to avoid computer systems causing threats to health and safety. Well, that would mean that no member of the ACM can contribute to developing any weapon system, since those are clearly intended to cause harm. Many computer scientists in the US receive financial support from the military and are working on weapon systems. So, none of them could be a member of the ACM? In theory, yes. I could try to email their ethics committee. That might not be necessary. Uh, shall we try to draft a response? Oh yes, please. The two of us worked for more than an hour before I send the email reply. Dear Jack, Thank you for the clarification, in particular about the legal situation. Please allow me to point out that all research activities have costs. Any cost can be seen as having the potential to cause harm. But in this case, the harm was theoretical and not disproportionate to a burden that the organisation has created for itself, namely to conduct a vetting procedure on incoming papers. 
My methodology was very similar to that used by others. For example, Sissy and Peters, the science magazine study I mentioned earlier. In the case of Science Magazine, the intent appears to have been to cause reputational damage because the journal released the names of the other journals it tested. In contrast, the scope of my research was modest in time requirements, although I accept annoying to those invested effort in them. And I never intended to release the content of the papers or make it possible to identify the authors of the papers or the identities of the reviews for ACM. I accept that if 100 of my colleagues had conducted the same experiment at the same time, it would have been overwhelming. But there is no evidence that such has ever happened, or that there is any likelihood of it happening. The Science Magazine study could also be said to have incurred a cost on the journals and their reviewers who received the fabricated manuscripts. The scale of the Science Magazine study certainly dwarfed the scale of my study. That study involved 304 journals and all the reviewers and editors that the 255 responding journals used in the exercise. ACM is not above being studied, just as no other institution in society is above being studied. Others who put themselves in the role of peer reviewer have been the subject of similar research for a long time. I agree that if the papers I submitted had been accepted and then withdrawn, as they would have been, this would have left the conference with a challenge to fill those slots. However, papers being withdrawn after acceptance is not unheard of, so the issue would have been one of scale, not novelty. Against this potential inconvenience would be the value of the research to ACM and others. What is the harm in doing research that might be of benefit? Obviously within limits. I can see that individuals might be upset, because of the implications my research had for their workloads. But I cannot see an ethical issue for the ACM as a body. When it comes to individuals, I am sorry for any increase in work that they may have caused. However, that I actually caused it is not clear. Even 12 papers would have been small compared to the number received or anticipated to be received, and thus the system was designed to handle this workload. And it was the system not the individuals that I was studying. Those who are working in these systems must accept as part of their commitment that the system is not above being part of someone's research. The remaining outstanding issues are whether my use of the papers was a violation of copyright or constituted plagiarism. Sessie and Peters faced the same challenges. On the first matter, since I had no intention of publishing the submitted papers, there was no violation of copyright, well, to my understanding. I also was not asked to sign any copyright agreement. On the second matter, I was not attempting to claim the words as mine or benefit from any such claim for the fictitious person submitting them. I did technically reproduce the text as a substrate for my research, but did not reproduce the text for the purposes of associating the text or its meaning with me. My feeling at this time is that I could have done this in a better way. I have learned that, largely because of the challenges to my methodology coming from ACM. However, at the moment I do not see that I have made an objective violation of ethical standards in how I treated the ACM, or of individuals by adding marginally to a workload that they had already accepted. I believe that the Ethics Committee might want to review the discussion around Sessie and Peter's paper, and hence I have attached it to this email. 
Let's continue this discussion in early January. During Christmas time, I would prefer to let my work rest and instead attend to my family. I hope that you feel the same and I wish you all the best. Yours truly, Rob. Oh, that sounds excellent. Have you received any comments from Matthew or the Dean? Well, not yet. Let's hope it stays that way. Anyway, look, thanks for the help. I have to get back to my work. I left Professor Smith's office and walked into the kitchen to prepare some tea before getting back to my desk. As I entered the kitchen, I noticed Professor Dr Matthew Berg filling his cup with some coffee. I froze in a split second. Hello, Dr Park. Oh, hi there. My secretary noticed the receipt from the ACM concerning your membership. What about it? Are you certain that this membership is still, how should I put it, desired? I guess so. Very well then. I'm certain that it will allow you to focus your research on truly important issues that fit into the focus of the group and that will contribute to your promotion portfolio? Absolutely. That is good to hear. Please remember that our department is expecting the highest standards for research and ethics. Have a good day, Dr Park. Goodbye. I remained paralysed for another minute before I could even think about preparing my tea.